The next scripture reading is John chapter 17, uh, verses 6, uh, and John chapter 17, verses 14 through 23. I have manifested your name to the people. I'm sorry, excuse me, it's on page 587, sorry. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out to the world. Yours Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, as I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also, or also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. And they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, and that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent them, sent me, and love them as even as you loved me. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, well, open up your Bibles while you're there to John chapter 17. We are going to finish up this prayer that Jesus has been praying. Uh, we looked at it last week as well. Um, this is the final prayer that Jesus prays before he is arrested uh, on his way to being crucified. And this is a prayer uh, that he prays for us. It's a prayer that he, he prays for his uh, disciples. He prays it for everyone who would come to know about him uh, through the word that the disciples preach. And it's a prayer for holiness. It's a prayer that we would be protected. It's a prayer that the church would grow and have a powerful witness. But weirdly, as we're going to look at this morning, it's also a prayer that we, as Christ's followers, won't take being hated too personally. It's a prayer that we won't take being hated by the world too personally. And that's a tall order. In today's day and age, it's, it's a really tall order that we wouldn't take it personally when we're hated because we want to be liked, don't we? We live in a culture where we kind of go out of the way to not offend other people. We have a, a long list of things that we should and shouldn't do, things that we should and shouldn't say, and that list grows by the day, and we try to abide by it, right? We want to live in harmony and peace with the people around us. That's one of our core values as a society. But Jesus tells us here that it is not possible to follow him and be universally loved. It's not possible to follow him and be liked by the world. That if you are in that group of people, the group that he's talking about, if you have come to know Christ as your Savior and you claim uh, his righteousness for your own salvation, then one of the costs associated with that, one of the costs of following him is that the world is going to hate you. 
So I want us to look at this passage and figure out what that means. I want us to look at this text and figure out what that means for us. What does it mean for Christians to know that the world's going to hate you? And what does it mean for those of you here who might be kind of wrestling with these claims, maybe considering Christianity? What does it mean that Christians are hated by the world? So I want us to see three things this morning. I want us to see first what this prayer tells us about the way the world feels about Christ's followers. So first, how the world feels about Christ's followers. And then secondly, I want us to think about how the world feels about us, how the world feels about you and me here in this room. And then finally, I want us to consider what it will take to change our relationship to the world. Okay? So let's start with that. How does the world feel about Christ's followers? Um, open up your Bibles if you got them. If you don't, we have some in the seats that you're welcome to take home with you. Uh, John chapter 17, verse 14. It says, uh, these people that he's praying for, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Right off the bat, Jesus says that his followers have been hated by the world. And we need to be careful with that. Uh, we need to understand what this is not saying before we go too much further, because there are plenty of reasons why, plenty of good reasons, why the world has a distaste for Christians. There's plenty of reasons why the world dislikes Christianity, and they're, they're not really what Jesus is talking about here. Probably the main reason why the world has a distaste for Christians is because of self-righteousness, smugness, right? There is a long legacy of people who call themselves Christians and in the name of God have taken the law of God and wielded it like a weapon, right? Who have looked at the rules and used that as a way to claim their own superiority over everyone else. You know what I'm talking about? People who, who say, well, I've had no problem following these rules, so I don't see why everyone else can't follow them. It's the prayer that of the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. Do you know this story, Luke 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector? And it says uh, they're, they're worshiping, and this Pharisee comes before God and prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get, right? This, this attitude that that we as religious people are better than everyone else. We've done all the right things, whereas they've done all the bad things. Have you experienced this before? Have you been on the receiving end of this kind of religion before? I remember when I was uh, just turning 21, I went out and uh, for my 21st birthday, here's the wild lifestyle I used to live. I went to the grocery store, <laughs> and I bought one six-pack of beer and brought it back to my apartment. <laughs> and I sat down with my roommate, and I drank one beer, and I put it in the fridge. But then the next day, uh, this roommate's girlfriend came over, and she was a Christian, and she said to me, oh, I heard that the two of you went out and, and got a beer on your 21st birthday. And I said, yeah, yeah, it was, it was all right. It was pretty good, I guess. And she said, okay, well, good. And then she walked up the stairs, and just after she got out of my line of sight, she went, thought you were better than that. <laughs> now listen, if you act that way, and the world hates you, it has nothing to do with Jesus, okay? 
If you act that way, the world's going to hate you. And I want to also say, if you're not a Christian here, and that has been your experience of Christianity, I want to apologize. We do stuff like that, but it has nothing to do with Jesus. That's not how we're called to carry out our faith. In fact, if you read the end of that story with the tax collector, you know that then the tax collector comes up and he prays, and it says that he he beat his breast before God. He, he wouldn't even lift up his eyes, and he said, Be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. No, when Jesus is talking about being hated, he's talking about something different than that. The world shouldn't hate Christians because we're smug. But the world should, he says the world is going to hate us. And here's why. Back at our passage in verse 14, he says, I have given them your word. And then again in verse 17, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In other words, the reason why the world is going to hate the people of God is because they have been and are being changed by the truth of God's word. They have been and they are being changed by the truth of God's word. And he uses there the word sanctify. Did you hear that? Sanctify them. Now, pay attention, because that's not a common word. We don't tend to use the word sanctify all that often. Um, and I need to define it for you. There's two meanings that I, I need you to keep in your head from right now until I finish speaking, because you've got to understand both of them. The first is what you'll see here in your Bibles, if you've got Bibles with all a bunch of notes and footnotes at the bottom, uh, one of them will say, set apart for holy service to God. That part of the idea of being sanctified is being set apart for holy service to God. That's one meaning, being set apart. The other meaning is the theological meaning. And we find that in the Westminster Confession, one of the main documents of our tradition. Um, but it's taken right out of Scripture. It says, sanctification is a work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, and we are enabled more and more to die to sin and live to righteousness. So on one hand, the first definition is this action, that Christians are called out of the world and that they are set aside for this purpose, this action, set aside for the purpose. And the other definition is there's a process here. It's the process where, through the Holy Spirit, Christians become increasingly able to follow God faithfully, to turn away from sin, to live lives of holiness. So the action set aside, the process becoming more holy in your life. And so Jesus says the world hates the people of God because the truth of God, the power of God is embodied in them. That our worship, if you're a Christian here, that, that your worship bears witness to a truth that the world hates to hear. Paul was describing his experience of this in, in the letter uh, to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Maybe you know it as 2 Corinthians. Lately. Um, 
anyway, so Second <laughs> Corinthians four, chapter two, verses fourteen. Um, Paul says that he's talking about his ministry of of proclaiming the truth to people, but he says that to some people it has been the odor of death. And to other people, this very same message has been a word of life to them. His life, the same message, the same word of truth, to some people is perceived of as the stench of death. And to others, it was perceived as, as the fragrance of life. Why is that? Why is the truth, why is good news perceived as bad news? Why is something that is meant to be life-giving perceived as deadly? Well, let's think about it. I mean, let me ask you, have you ever had someone point out a flaw that you were already aware of in your life? Have you ever had somebody confront you on a flaw that you already knew was there, but maybe you thought nobody could tell, <laughs> right? Maybe you, you thought nobody really noticed that thing, but you kind of already felt guilty about it. You kind of were, were trying to work on it, but you know you're not making much progress. Has anybody ever pointed out something like that in your life? Maybe a friend or a spouse or a roommate, coworker. Maybe they said, you know, you're really, you're pretty selfish. Or maybe something smaller than that. Maybe you just look at your phone too much. You know? What if it's, you, you know, you're really obsessed with your job. How do you respond? If it's something you already are aware of, do you say, gee, you know, you're right. I knew that, and I'm, thanks for bringing it up. I'm, I'm really trying to work on it. No, that's not what you do, right? Even, even if you know it's true, you usually say something like, no, no, no. No, you don't understand. I, I just did that because. You know, I'm, I'm only doing this because I got this going on. You know, I'm... I'm not selfish, you're selfish, right? It never comes off that way. Our instinct is to deny, to defend, to, to grasp for other things, to prove our own rightness, to prove our own righteousness and our own goodness. Because we don't like the truth. When somebody confronts us with the truth, we feel exposed. We feel naked. It forces us to deal with things that we would rather avoid, <laughs> that we'd rather pretend like we can't see and that we don't know about. And if that's how you react to somebody bringing up a minor truth in your life, of course we're going to react the same way to the major truth. Of course we're going to react the same way to that capital T kind of truth. I bet many of us are familiar with John 3.16, probably one of the most famous passages in Scripture. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You might even know the verse that comes after it. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Right? You've heard those verses. But have you ever followed the thought have you ever kept going and read the ones that come after it? Right after Paul explains this great offer of grace and salvation through Jesus, he goes on to say, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So here's this great offer of truth in the gospel. But what he says is, when the light came, the people preferred the darkness. They didn't want to deal with that capital T truth because it exposed the things they didn't want to deal with. People hate the light. People hate the truth. In our natural instincts, we hate holiness because the truth exposes us. It holds up a mirror to our face and it forces us to deal with those things we don't want to see. That we're sinners. That we don't measure up. We don't measure up. That's what the truth tells us. That our life of rebellion has separated us from God, and our only hope is if we have a Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that's why the world hates us. The world hates to see that proclaimed. So if you're a Christian in the room, that's how the world feels about you. The world hates you. Or does it? Isn't that strange? Jesus speaks like this is a fact. The world has hated them. Jesus says the world's going to hate his followers. But I bet for most of us this just isn't true, right? I bet for most of us this doesn't seem like it's the case at all. So what's going on? Why doesn't the world hate us? That's the second thing I want us to look at this morning. The way the world feels about us, you and me. Why doesn't the world hate us like this? Now, before I talk too much, I, I want to remind you that the command for all Christians is to love our neighbors, right? <laughs> to love our neighbors as ourselves. And it shouldn't be our goal to be as hated as we possibly can, right? <laughs> that's, that's not what I'm encouraging you to do here. There are tons of passages in Scripture that, that say quite the opposite. That as Christians, our goal should be that we are thought well of by the world. Acts chapter 2, the story of the church right after it was formed. It's a picture of the church at its high point, and here's how it describes them. It says that the people were together praising God and having favor with all the people. In 1 Timothy, it's a letter that Paul wrote to tell churches how to pick leaders. And one of the qualifications for elders, he says that an elder should be thought well of by outsiders. That's one of the qualifications. Outsiders should think well of them. And for all Christians, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus never says that being hated is a goal we're supposed to strive for, okay? He says that it is a reality that we are supposed to live with. John 15, right before this, he said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So what do I mean? What am I talking about the world hating you? Here's just a few examples of what it means for the world to hate you. 
It means that if you follow Christ, the world will misunderstand you. People will disagree with you. They will not share your point of view on a lot of things. The world will despise some of the beliefs that you find core to your being. It means sometimes, maybe it means often, you are going to stand against the popular views of our culture and our society. It means people are going to think that you are backwards. People are going to look down at you. People are going to mock you. People may persecute you. It means some of us here are going to suffer tremendously because of what we believe. And it means if you look at Scripture, if you look at the world, some people are going to die. But for many of us, those things never happen. We might occasionally feel assaulted in kind of a passive way by something we watch on TV, right? We might read something on Facebook that makes us feel bad inside. But to actually feel persecuted, we're usually safe. We're usually safe from any kind of real human interaction here. We're far removed from conflict. It's a stretch. It's a real stretch for us to say we're hated. So why is that? Why doesn't the world hate us more? I think there's two reasons. And they're, you know, it's not rocket science, simple reasons that come straight out of this text. But two reasons. And the, and the reason number one is the world doesn't hate you because you aren't living a distinctive life. He says the people will be sanctified by the word of God. They, they will be sanctified by his truth. But, but a lot of times we're not. We're not living distinctive lives. One of the reasons this passage doesn't resonate with us is because for many of us there's not much of a difference between us and the person on the street. For some of us, maybe you do follow Jesus, maybe you read the Word, maybe you pray all the time, but your faith is, is like your best-kept secret. Nobody would know unless they asked you. And, and that's what you think is going to happen, right? You say, well, if I just stay here and I'm a nice guy, if I'm a nice... If I'm a nice woman, then somebody someday is going to come up and say, you're probably a Christian, tell me about Jesus. Right? You've heard that, that phrase, uh, you know, always preach the gospel and when necessary use words, right? I don't know if you guys read the, the Babylon Bee, which is like a, a fake Christian news site, and they had a story last, a couple weeks ago that said, local man always feeds the hungry and when necessary uses food. <laughs> I think we're kidding ourselves if we're living a life like that. But for others, we really are no different from the world at all. Maybe it started out that you just didn't want to seem strange. Maybe it started out that you didn't want to ruffle feathers, you didn't want to make a big deal about your faith, but at some point, it became impossible to distinguish you from anyone else. Now you, you take the same shortcuts with your work that everybody else takes. You immerse yourself in the same forms of entertainment without any kind of question. You deal in all the same gray areas. You talk the same way. You act the same way. You pursue the same goals. You look to the same thing as success. You look to the same things to make you happy. And you never find yourself 
at odds with the world's value. You, nothing ever strikes you as, as offensive, and certainly nothing ever strikes you as sinful. In fact, it's the stuff you hear about the Bible that tends to offend you more. Jesus says that Christians are called to be the salt of the earth. Matthew chapter 5, he says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, right? So salt, it's distinctive. It tastes different. It's noticeable. He says, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Let's be honest. Some of us never feel hated, like I said, because we're not bold enough, because we don't speak up enough. But others of us really need to think hard about that passage. If you want to conform to the world more than you want to conform to Christ, Jesus says maybe one of the things you should consider is that you aren't actually a Christian at all. The first reason why we're not hated is because we aren't holy. And the second reason, the second reason that's equally important is here in verse 18. He says, I, as you sent me into the world, so Jesus praying before God, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus sends his people into the world. But you know what? The other reason we might not be hated is because we are not in the world. There are two powerful ways to kill a church. And the one is what we just talked about, to conform the church to the society until there is no distinction between them. The church is always at its weakest when it is most like the world. And if you don't believe me, go around Boston and just look at all the big buildings, all those big churches, and walk inside them on a Sunday. See what's going on there. A lot of them have left the word behind a long time ago, and they have, have turned into nothing. But the other danger, on the other side, is that we would become so distinct that we barricade ourselves from the world. That we make our holy huddle, we only read Chronicles of Narnia, we only listen to Michael W. Smith and watch movies that star Kurt Cameron, right? We get together. Now, now maybe that's a parody, right? Maybe that's a, that's a little extreme. But, but the truth is, it's very common for Christians to get to this place where they only hang out with the people in the church and we just call it a life. Maybe the world doesn't hate you because the world has never seen you before. <laughs> That's something we need to consider. Jesus prays that we would be sanctified. Do you remember the two meanings? One meaning is that we would become increasingly holy that we would be distinct from the world. But the other one is that we would be set apart for a purpose, that we are on a mission to preach the truth of God's word to the world. And so mission and maturity, they go hand in hand. Those things have to go together. And the world is never going to feel anything about us unless both things are true. So what do we do? What do we do to make our relationship with the world change? What's it going to take? Well, I said mission and maturity go hand in hand. 
That was like 10 seconds ago, so you probably remember. <laughs> I said mission and maturity. They go hand in hand, but it's probably not the way you would expect. And if you look at this, our, our, our prayer here, notice this. Verse 18, Jesus prays, As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them. And then verse 19, he prays, And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus prays for people. Jesus has sent out his people before he has prayed for their sanctification. Isn't that interesting? I was just reading this book this week. Um, it's a really good one. You should pick it up. It's called uh, The Hole in Our Holiness. It's by Kevin DeYoung. And he is talking in, in that uh, book about the letter to 1 Timothy. It's a, a letter from Paul to a young pastor where he sets up the standards for being a pastor. And basically, the standards are about as high as you can get. He says, be holy, be an example to older men, to younger men, that, that you, your life should exude holiness. No pressure, right? I know, Timothy, you're just starting out in ministry. You're just minutes out of seminary. But this is the standard. Ex be an example of holiness to everybody. But then if you uh, ever go look at that letter... It's really interesting. One of the things Paul also says to him is this. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see you progress. In other words, you're going to have to make some progress. <laughs> when you start out, you're not going to be all the way there. But go and do it anyway. As you live for me, as you follow me, as you pastor these people, they will see you progress. You're going to grow. You're going to mature through the mission. Jesus sends his people out unformed, knowing that you got a long way to go. He knows that. Jesus knows you have a long way to go. But that doesn't stop him from sending you. In fact, the Holy Spirit is going to use that mission to fuel your hunger and thirst for righteousness. He's going to use that mission to fuel your desire to be distinctive. As you go out into the world, that's where you're going to be convicted of your sin. As you go out into the world, that's where you're going to be confronted with your shortcomings. It's not going to happen you know, watching Netflix on your couch. That's not where it's going to take place. I'll never forget some of the ways that's been true for me. Right, I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm a church planter. I went to seminary. I know it's important to, to learn about my faith. I knew for a long time that I had this big hole where I just didn't know any good arguments. You know, that if, I, if people had questions, I didn't know any apologetic stuff. I didn't have much of a solid reason that I could communicate with people. And it was always one of those things where I was like, you know, I need to grow in this area. I need to learn more about this. But it wasn't until I was standing at the tee and a 15-year-old just totally stumped me <laughs> that I had the passion to go do it. I was like, well, that's not going to happen again. <laughs> i got to have an answer for this kid. That's what drove me to grow. You know, I know I need to love my neighbors. I know I need to, to grow in my cultural sensitivity. But it wasn't until somebody cussed me out 
that I realized I needed to go, and I started to pray. The mission drives our maturity. So, you know, we often we get this backwards, right? We think we need to have all our ducks in a row. We think we need to have reached the pinnacle before we can go out and do anything. But the truth is, when we are going out boldly, that's the place where the Lord's going to meet us. And so today, I, I mean, concrete application, guys. If, if you're feeling convicted that your life is not distinct enough, go today. If you're feeling uh, convicted that you are in the Christian bubble too much, go today. Go right now. Go to, go to City Pop. You know, go walk over there and meet some people. Go talk to your neighbors. Talk to your coworkers. This week, talk to your classmates. Talk to the people that, that live in the houses beside you or that you pass by on the street. Okay, now look. Up to this point, I've pointed out a lot of our shortcomings. I'm sure that, that there's lots of places where, where we're feeling guilty and, and convicted. Um, and that's good. We should be feeling those things. But if that's all we feel... I've, I've done you wrong because there's more in this passage and I, and I don't want us to miss the point because this is a prayer. This text is a prayer that Jesus is praying for us, for his church. In verse 20, it says, I'm praying these not only for, for my disciples right here in this, this space, but, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus is praying this for every Christian throughout the ages. He's praying this for me. He's praying this for anyone in this room that calls themselves a follower of Christ. He's praying it for the church. And not just individuals. He's praying that the church, that us here, gathered together, that we would be the witness for Christ. In other words, the sum of our witness is not just that conversation that you go and have with your neighbor this week. It's not just an individual conversation. It's not all up to you. But it is Christ on display through his church. He says that the church, us together worshiping, being reminded of the gospel, is what is going to prove the gospel to the world. Verse 23. I pray this so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. He prays that the church would be unified so that the world will know who Jesus is and they will know that we're loved just as Christ is loved. And that's the, the thing I want us to focus on here at the, the very end. Jesus says, that, I, that this is going to be the proof that, that, that you have loved them even as you loved me. I think the whole gospel can be summed up in that line. You have loved them even as you have loved me. God has loved us even as he has loved Jesus. You see, the truth of the gospel, whenever we come before it, whenever we look at God's law, it confronts us with the painful reality that we don't measure up. We haven't done what we're supposed to do. Our sin condemns us before a holy God. But the good news is that God has sent the only one who ever did measure up. 
God has sent the only one who ever did measure up and sanctified him, set him apart for a holy purpose. And the purpose was to come here and live the life that you couldn't live. To live a holy life, a perfect life, to stand in your place, and then on the cross to die the death you should have died. To bear the punishment that you brought on yourself for your disobedience. Christ came as our substitute. And because He is our substitute, that means everyone who has come to Christ, every one of you who call yourselves Christians, you are loved even as He is loved. And so that means the thing that should motivate you today to go out and be on mission, the thing that should motivate you to go out and live a holy life of distinction in this community, it's not because you have to or else, but it's because God loves you. He loves you the same way that He loves Jesus. You don't have to be a perfect evangelist to have God's love. You don't have to be completely sanctified at this point to have God's love. In Christ, you are loved just as much as Jesus is. And when that sinks into your bones, that's going to change you. When we can get that into our our thick skulls, (laughs) that's going to change us. It's going to make us realize that we, we, we should be conformed to Jesus, not to this world. That He's the only one that can fulfill us. That we need Jesus more (laughs) than we need anything else. But if that's not enough motivation for you, look one last time at the text. Jesus is praying for you. Jesus has prayed this for you. He prayed this for His church. And He prayed this for you specifically, whoever you are in this room today. Jesus prayed for you, and you know what He prayed? He prayed that you would be set apart for a holy mission and that you would be made holy. And guess what? If He prayed it, it's going to come to pass. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the the blessing of Your Word. Father, we thank You that You are the agent of our sanctification. Your Holy Spirit is what what changes us and transforms us. It's not just up to us to try harder. But Lord, we have to admit here, we have to be honest, that we have failed this mission. Lord, that we have conformed ourselves to the world. We have lived lives that are not distinct. So, Father, I pray that we would come to You for life this morning. That we would turn from our sin and that we would run to You. I pray, Father, that You would sanctify us in Your truth. Your Word is truth. May You transform us into Your likeness today. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who might need a Savior for the first time. Anyone who's realized that they don't measure up. Father, I pray that You would reveal Yourself. I pray that they would come to You in confession. I pray that they would repent and believe the Gospel. In Jesus' name, Amen.